go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll continue our study of the confession. Lord, we are so glad to come together as a church to worship our King. And for many of us, we're glad to be back this week after dealing with uh, some sickness and being out. And uh, Lord, just missing one Sunday reminds us of how much we need and how much we enjoy the Lord's Day, being together as a church and attending the means of grace and fellowshipping and hearing the Word and growing together. What a joy indeed it is and what a foretaste of heaven it is. We long for that day in which every day is the full expression of the Lord's Day. Every day we'll behold Your face and Your glory, not as in a mirror as we do here, but we'll behold You actually, not with the eyes of our heart and with the eye of faith, but we'll behold You with the eyes of our head. We'll behold You in the fullness of Your glory. And Lord, that's what we long for. And so now as we open the Scripture and as we use the confession as an instrument to get us into the Scripture... It is our desire to see Your glory now, to grow in our love for our Savior, to have our hearts' affections stirred and warmed that we might love Jesus more, that our lives might more reflect His praise, His honor, and His glory. And we pray all of these things to that end. Amen. Alright, if you have your copy of the Confession, we're going to be on page 13 this morning. Page 13, and we'll pick up in paragraph 8. Uh, We're still on chapter 1, no surprise there, on the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God written. And uh, so far as we've discussed the Word of God in the Confession, what are some things that we've learned about the Scripture? What are some things the Confession has taught us about the Word of God? My note takers are all busy or not here. What have we learned? We talked about the necessity of Scripture, right? We need the Bible. Why do we need the Bible? Because although we can see that there is a Creator in nature, and we know in our hearts that it was created, but we can't learn the Gospel from nature. Amen. So we need the Bible because without divine revelation, we cannot know God's will for salvation. We can know God exists, we can know His law, we can see His glory, but we cannot ascertain the truth necessary for salvation without the Bible. So we talked about the the necessity of Scripture, we talked about the extent of Scripture, right? Not the Apocrypha, but the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. Uh, We've talked about the authority of Scripture, and the Scripture doesn't get its authority from the church. It doesn't get its authority from some papacy or some bishop. It gets its authority from the author, namely God Himself. Uh, we talked about, uh, last week uh, we finished up talking about uh, the clarity or the perspicuity of Scripture, that the Bible is clear. Uh, does that mean that all of Scripture is as clear as every other part of Scripture? Are there anything, any things in Scripture difficult to understand? Yes, right? We're going to be talking about some difficult things this morning with the Antichrist and some, some of that good stuff. So there are definitely things in the Bible less clear than others. Uh, Peter said that Paul's writings are hard to understand. So the Pauline writings are perhaps the most difficult, he says. But the truth necessary for salvation is so clearly laid out in the Scripture that anyone using ordinary measures can understand that truth. But without the Spirit of God in our hearts... Enabling us to love and believe that truth, we never will do so, right? So, 
For us to believe the truth, we need more than our intellectual capacities. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Now we come to paragraphs 8 uh, through 10 to finish up chapter 1 this morning. And in paragraph 8, we're going to see what we could call the preservation of Scripture. And then in paragraphs 9 and 10, we'll look at the rule of Scripture. Uh, so first of all, the preservation of Scripture, paragraph 8. I'll read that for us now. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the native language of the ancient people of God. The New Testament was written in Greek, which at the time it was written was most widely known to the nations. These testaments were inspired directly by God, and by His unique care and providence were kept pure down through the ages. They are therefore true and authoritative, so that in all religious controversies the church must make their ultimate appeal to them. All God's people have a right to and a claim on the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Not all of God's people know these original languages, so the Scriptures are to be translated into the common language of every nation to which they come. In this way, the Word of God may dwell richly in all so that they may worship Him in an acceptable manner and through patience and the comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. So we're talking about the preservation of Scripture. The Bible was written in three languages, ultimately. Does anyone know the languages? We looked at two of them here. Hebrew, Greek, and there's one more language. Aramaic. Aramaic. There was two passages in the Old Testament in Aramaic. And so these are the three languages the Bible's written in. Uh, Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, and Greek. And it's interesting that when God wants to communicate to people, He uses their language, right? He uses their language. He can't communicate, we can't communicate without using common language. Um, you know, he didn't come to the people in the Greek world in the first century with Hebrew because the common language spoken in the first century was Greek. Most people knew Greek, so the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, but know, then it says... There's another interesting thing about that, that Greek is the most specific language that there is. Like, I forget now whether it's five words for love or seven words for love. Yeah. And and so you can really tell what it's saying because Greek is so specific. Yeah, very unique language, very unique. And a lot of times in the word order you'll get like the emphasis. Like today in the text, it'll say, in our Bible it'll say it is the last hour. The Greek says the last hour, it is. I mean, there's an emphasis. So <laughs> Greek's a very unique language. And God chose to communicate to that first century world in a common language. That's, so, that, so that's why it's important that, uh, you know, th take the King James Version. The King James Version is a good version of the Bible. Uh, but people who think that it's the only version of the Bible that should be used are really nullifying this argument. The whole purpose of the King James Version in the 1611, in 1611 when it was translated, was to make a Bible for people in their common language. We don't speak 1611 English anymore, Right? It's hard for me to read the King James Version and really grasp the nuances of what it's saying because I don't speak that language, uh, at least not in that form. But we have newer translations that obviously communicate to us in the more modern English. And so we need translations of the Bible in our language. And then the Confession says these testaments were inspired directly by God. We've already talked about that. Theonoustos. It's breathed out by God. He superintended the writing process, so they wrote the very words of God, but also by His unique care and providence were kept pure down through the ages. And so the Bible, not only was it originally inspired by God, but it has been throughout the ages preserved by God. 
how do we know that the Bible has been kept pure through the ages? Because many people will say the reason Christianity isn't trustworthy is because the Bible's been corrupted. How can we know that the Bible has not been corrupted? Because of current version agrees with the older, the oldest thing that we have. Right. And and the interesting thing about that is that the oldest of pieces of the Bible are first, second century. Right. But the oldest that we have of Pluto and Socrates and some of those. No. Is fifth or sixth centuries. Right. And nobody argues that they're not true. Yeah, you never hear that argument, do you? Yeah. No, that's very good. Very good. The, the Bible. The the story of the resurrection is more proven than the existence of George Washington. It's unbelievable. <laughs> very, very strong arguments, huh? So the Bible is, out of all works of antiquity, the Bible is by far the best preserved. Uh, again, you know, you take the second best preserved ancient document would be Homer's Iliad, and it's, uh, I think there's about 500 copies of Homer's little poem, po the little work there, and there are about 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. I mean, it blows everything away. Uh, Homer's work, I mean, you, you've got a, the, the earliest copy we have today of Homer's work is about 500 years or so after the original. The Bible, we have some manuscripts from the second century. That's just a hundred years or less from the time the apostles wrote. And then you have, that that's just Greek manuscripts. That's not counting all languages. In all languages, we have almost 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. I mean, it blows every document away. And the reason this is the case is because God, through human agents, has preserved His Word. Uh, you, you can read church history and there are stories that scribes would literally write a letter as they had a copy beside them and they're trying to copy another, make another copy. They would write a letter, go take a bath, come back and write another letter. I mean, they took this pretty serious. So the Word of God has been preserved. But then that brings us to a question. Not all of the manuscripts agree, right? We have 5,300 manuscripts. The Hebrew, by the way, the Old Testament, uh, the, the major Hebrew text is the Masoretic text. That's not a very old text. I mean, I think we have the earliest copies are like 6th, 7th, 8th century or something like that. But they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 to 1949 in a cave, and 38 out of the 39 books are there, at least fragments of those books. Some of them date back to the, I think, 2nd century B.C., and they read uh, exactly, essentially exactly like the Masoretic text. So the Bible's clearly been preserved. But there are some minor disagreements. Some minor disagreements. So scholars utilize what we call textual criticism where they put the text beside each other and they examine the differences so that they can try to reconstruct the original. And only about 3% of the passage, or of the Bible, 3% of the text is really in question as to what it should say. And that 3% has no real uh, significant bearing on any theological or historical truth. You know, was it his house or her house? You know, was it... Was it Nympha or Nymphus? Was it him or her? I mean, those things are just non-essential. The Bible has been preserved for us. And then the confession says, they are therefore, the Scriptures, true and authoritative, so that in all religious controversies, the church must make their ultimate appeal to them. All God's people, notice this statement here, all God's people have a right to and a claim on the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. 
So all of the people of God have a right to the Scripture. Where do you think they... Uh, what led the writers of the Confession to say this? What, 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 what idea would they be attacking? Who taught that all people didn't have a right to the Scriptures? Roman Catholic Church, right? You, you don't need the Bible. You've got the papacy, you've got the church, you've got ecclesiastical tradition. We'll tell you what God wants you to know. You don't need the Bible. But the confession says, no, you need the Bible. Everyone needs the Bible. All the people of God need the Bible, and therefore they all need it in their own language. So all God's people have a right to and a claim on the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read them and search them. And not all of God's people know the original languages. I know that's a shock to us, right? We all know the original languages. So therefore, the Bible needs to be translated into the common language, and this way the Word of God may dwell richly in all. So Scripture clearly commands all believers to read the Word, meditate on the Word, have it dwelling in their hearts, and for us to do that, we all need Scripture in our language. So that would be the preservation of Scripture, and I don't think there's really a lot of verses to go to there that you probably haven't already heard. Uh, let's go to paragraph 9. One other thing. Hebrew is the only ancient language that's really used today as an active language. That's true. Hebrew is still <clears throat> still used. I don't know it, but some people do. Paragraph 9. Now we come to what I'm going to call the rule of Scripture. In paragraph 9, we see that the Scripture is the rule in interpreting the Scripture. And in paragraph 10, it's the rule in everything else in terms of and related to the church and the Christian life. So paragraph 9. The infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself. That is such an important statement. If you get this, you get this point here, you're going to have the right hermeneutics, the right principle for interpretation so that you can accurately understand what the Bible says. The infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself. Practically, an example of that would be found in James 2. You know, James chapter 2... Go to James chapter 2. I think we've done this before, but I'll show you again. James chapter 2 makes a statement that uh, seemingly contradicts everything we believe. It seemingly contradicts what I preach from this pulpit week in and week out. It seems to affirm uh, the Roman Catholic position of salvation by faith and works. James chapter 2. And if you read this, isolated from the context, both the immediate context and the ultimate context of the Bible, you will draw the wrong conclusion. So James 2, and uh, I want to look at verse 21. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And verse 24, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now wait a minute. What is the great cry of the Reformation? Sola fide, right? Salvation by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. But the Bible says right here that a man's not justified by faith alone, but by works. So, how do we interpret this? What do we make of this? Well, what we do is we read it in the context. Right, context. Context is the most important principle of interpretation. Just talk. Let's just look at the immediate context of the passage. 
Is James talking about how we're made right before God, or is he talking about how we justify our faith before men? Let's look at the context. Go to verse... Go to verse uh, 18. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. That's the context in James 2. James 2 is talking about how we justify our profession of faith before people, not how we are justified before God. Now, we go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'm going to read a verse or two from Romans 2 as well. Romans 2 verse... Romans 2 verse... Verse 11. Verse 12. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God. That's Romans 2 verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law. So in Romans, Paul's talking about how to be just before God. Then you go down to Romans 3, verse 20. Romans 3, verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Paul's not talking about how we justify ourselves before people, but how we're justified in God's sight. Justified before God. Justified before the judge. And then in verse 28, Romans 3, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. So in the context of Romans, Paul's talking about how we're justified before God, it's faith alone. In James, it's how we're justified before men, it's faith and works. We justify our claim to faith by our works. So if you interpret the Bible in light of its context, you come to the right conclusions. So back to the confession now. A little music for our Sunday school. The infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself. So when we're reading the Bible, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The Reformers called this the Analogia Fide, or Analogia Scriptura. That is to say, the Bible is analogous to itself. The Bible is its own best commentary. It's consistent with itself. And if we interpret the Bible with the Bible, we'll come to the right conclusions. Then the confession adds, Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full meaning of any part of Scripture, and each passage has but only one meaning, not many, it must be understood in light of other passages that speak more clearly. You want to understand James 2, you read Romans 3. You want to understand this passage, you read that passage. But then notice that, uh, that statement there. Each passage has only one meaning, not many. So when we're reading the Bible, is it okay to say, this is what it means to me? Can we determine what the text means? Is it, uh, is it the reader's job to, to determine the meaning of the passage, to, to determine what the passage means? Obviously, we have to figure out what it means, but are we the ones that give it its meaning? No. When we, if I write a letter to you, you don't read the letter and say, I'm going to figure out what this means based on what I want it to mean. This is. I'm going to look for symbolism. And I'm going to look for some uh, metaphors here. I'm just going to butcher everything Jamie said and make it mean what I want it to mean. We can't do that, right? It's not about what the Bible means to me. 
It's about what the Bible means objectively. We're looking for authorial intent. What the author wrote and what the author meant to convey is what the meaning of the passage is, not what we want it to mean. So if I read Romans, I can't say, you know, I think, I think what Paul's saying is that, uh, is that uh, you know, we're justified by faith, but we also are justified by works because that's what I think it means and that's what my religion and denomination says, so that's what it means. It doesn't work that way. We interpret the passage based on what Paul meant and what Paul meant and what ultimately God meant through Paul is what the passage meant. There is a hermeneutic today. It's called humble hermeneutics or the hermeneutics of humility. It's the idea that no one can know what the Bible means. Do you think that's true? Is it true that none of us can know? If that's the case, then why did God even give us the Bible? Just to fight over the Bible? I mean, if no one can know what the Bible means, then it's irrelevant to even have it. God gave us the Scripture because we can understand the Scripture. We do, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, have the mind of Christ, and therefore we can understand the Word of God. Alright, now paragraph 10. Paragraph 10. The supreme judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, and individual interpretations, and in whose judgment we are to rest, is nothing but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. In this Scripture our faith finds its final word. So yet again, if you read this, you should think Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church says we understand the Bible not just by reading the Bible, but also because of what the church teaches, what the papacy teaches, what tradition teaches. That's equally authoritative. The catechism literally says that tradition and papal authority is equally authoritative as the Word of God. It is equal to Scripture. But according to paragraph 10, the Word of God is our ultimate standard. So we don't appeal to what the Pope said. We don't appeal ultimately uh, to the Council of Nicaea or any of those things. Those are good things. We have wonderful statements of faith. We have wonderful uh, councils, wonderful creeds throughout church history. But ultimately, the Bible is the ultimate interpreter. The Bible is a good commentary on all of these things. The Bible is the standard, not the confession. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that uh, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That means that the foundation for the church is the apostles and the prophets. In what way are the apostles the foundation for the church? Ephesians 2.20 says the apostles are the foundation of the church. How are the apostles the foundation of the church? Isn't Jesus the foundation of the church? So how are the apostles the foundation? What do you think Paul meant there? He said the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the apostles are the foundation of the church confessionally. They're the foundation of the church in the sense that it's their teaching received by God from God that serves as the church's foundation. So it is the Word of God given via the apostles that becomes the foundation for all we believe and all we do as a church. So to conclude, uh, chapter 1 here, after, what, four or five long weeks, we have come to understand that we need the Bible because without it we cannot be saved. Uh, We've come to understand that the Bible is the Word of God. It is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God. Uh, We've 
understood the extent of the Bible. It's not the Apocrypha of the Roman Catholic Church. It's the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. It gets its authority from God Himself. It uh, also demonstrates itself, however, by scientific facts, historical accuracies, uh, the, the unbelievable amount of manuscripts. It uh, has been preserved for us, written in Hebrew and Greek, but translated into our languages and has been preserved throughout the ages. It is its rule for interpreting itself. The Bible interprets itself. And finally, the Bible is the rule for all other matters of religion and in the church. So as a church, when we determine how we're to worship, where do we go? What is our standard for worship? The Bible. What is our standard? When we determine that we're going to do evangelism, how do we do evangelism? Based on what we want to do? What the Scripture says, right? The way we pray should be based on the Scripture. The way we preach and teach, the way we uh, serve, all of this ultimately should be based upon what the Word of God says because the Scripture is the ultimate rule. Any thoughts or questions on chapter 1? Did you open up earlier? No, this is Sunday school. Oh, yeah, you're good. Service starts at 10.30. Oh, okay. Alright. I didn't want to walk in late. No, no, you're good, bud. You're good. It's good to see you though. Good to see you. Yes, sir. So now we'll come to chapter 2, God and the Holy Trinity, and we'll do most of the work uh, of that next week. But uh, clearly the confession is going to state that God is a trinity of persons, uh, the, the doctrine of the trinity. What do you think that means? What does it mean that God is a trinity? Is that just some pagan doctrine made up by uh, heretical teachers? When we say God is a trinity, what do we mean? I need some more notes out here. Alpha and Omega. Uh, right? Alpha so, and Omega, first and last. Well, that's true. God is the first and the last. Yeah. That, that's to say He's the one that created the universe. He's the one that's going to consummate the universe. He's the beginning and the end of it. Yeah, He made everything. He made everything. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good to see you, Big John. Doing well, bud? Yep. Good to see you. So God is the Creator, first and end, beginning and end. Uh, but when we talk about the Trinity, what are we talking about? God. That's for sure. No talking about God. <laughs> Three persons, one being. That's important. We have to di differentiate between those two words. Okay. I, I cringe when I read Christian writing and they say things like, God is three persons and one person. That's not what the Trinity teaches. That's why people look at Trinitarians and say they're idiots. They're, con they're contradicting themselves. Because we're, our own people are misrepresenting our position. The Trinity does not teach that God is one person and three persons. God is three persons. Always has been, always will be. But God is one being, always has been, and always will be. A being is what you are. A person is who you are. Obviously, we're finite beings. We, uh, we have trouble occupying one being as one person, let alone three. But God, being an infinite being, a perfect being, is three persons in one. Where would we go in the Bible to prove the doctrine of the Trinity? Someone says God's not a Trinity, that's a lie. Where would we go in the Bible to show that it is true? Everything God says is the truth. Everything God says is the truth. That's true. The baptism of Jesus. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. Verse 16 and 17. 
And as we work through this, let's see if we can find the persons here. After being baptized, Jesus, there's the Son, right? The second person of the Trinity. Came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and the, the heavens were opened, and, the, and he saw the Spirit of God, there's the third person of the Trinity, descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens, who's that? God the Father, there's the first person of the Trinity. A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So there you have all three persons of the Trinity in one verse acting distinctly because they are distinct. What are some other passages we might go to to demonstrate the doctrine of the Trinity? Can you think of any other ones? Matthew 28.19 There you go, Matthew 28. What does that say? We all, we're familiar with that, aren't we? What does Matthew 28.19 say? Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in what? The name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right, all three persons, right? That's three right. persons possessing one name that is one divine power and authority. Uh, what are some What are some of the cults in our day that deny the Trinity? I wouldn't say they're a cult. They're kind of like in argument with, with each other. They call them the apostolic with Jesus only. They're part of the penalty. Big one. The one that's Pentecostal, right? They deny the Trinity, they add baptism, it works to the Gospel. Very, very big one. And they're so subtle in doing it because they don't deny the Trinity the way most people do. Most people deny the Trinity by saying Jesus isn't God. They don't do that. They deny the Trinity, but they still say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, but they say they're all one person. That's still the wrong God. God's not one person. By the way, they also deny the eternality of the Son. Uh, Arius, uh, who was uh, basically what we call modern-day Jehovah's Witness doctrine is the doctrine of Arianism. Arius was a heretic in the first few centuries of the church. Arius taught that there was a time when the Son was not. There was a time when the Son was not. The Oneness Pentecostals ultimately agree with that because the Son, according to Oneness Pentecostal theology, is nothing but the human nature of Jesus. So there was a time, even in their theology, when the Son was not. But the Bible teaches very clearly that the Son is eternal, has always existed with the Father, and is therefore not just the human nature of Jesus, but is God Himself. So when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, there are three important principles. That if the Bible teaches these principles, the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical. Okay? Because is the, is the word Trinity in the Bible? No, you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible. And then they say, wait a minute, if you believe in the Trinity, it's not in the Bible, you don't believe the Bible. Yeah, we do. Because if these three principles that comprise the doctrine of the Trinity are in the Bible, the Bible teaches the Trinity. So first of all, there is the, the principle of monotheism. The belief that there is only one true God. The second principle is that in the Bible there are three distinct persons mentioned. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are distinct. But the third principle is that these three persons all serve as the one God. All constitute one God. Let's look at these principles. First of all, there's only one God. Go to 1 Corinthians 8.6. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Actually, I want to look at verse, verses 4 to 6. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about offering things to idols. That the pagans would offer their food to idols in the marketplace, then you could buy it and eat it. And some Christians were troubled with that because they thought if I'm eating meat sacrificed to idols, then I'm an idolater. But Paul says that's not the case. Verse 4, 
Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. How many gods are there? One. There's one God, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, uh, it was basically uh, the, it was a statement that the Jews recited daily. It's called the Shema, uh, and that's the Hebrew word for hear. And Deuteronomy 6, 4 reads like this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. So there's one God, and this God is one. This God is one. He's not, he's not multiple gods. He's not multiple beings. He's one God. One God is one being. So the Bible teaches that very clearly. Isaiah 43 says, There is no God before me, nor any God after me. There's not even a created God after God. He is the only God. There's no other God. John 17.3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. So to Jesus, there's only one true God. So, if, a God, if there's only one true God, then every other God is what? A false God. False God, yeah. False God. There's one true God. There's, there's only two categories to fall into. True God, false God. There's only one true God. Every other God then is an idol, a false God. So there's one God. But now, secondly, there are three persons. There are three persons. And there are many errors concerning the Trinity that, uh, that deny one of these aspects. So, for instance... The Mormons deny the first point. The Mormons deny that there's one God. In Mormonism, how many gods are there? Does anyone know? I've got 150 gods. As many as there are dead believers. <laughs> no one knows how many gods there are in Mormonism. I mean, just keep going. In fact, like you said, even in Mormonism, if you're a good, faithful Mormon, you become a god. You get your own planet, and you and your goddess wife can populate your own planet. So there's many gods. The trinity in Mormonism is that there are three gods, three beings, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's not the biblical doctrine of the trinity. But the second point is that there are three persons. That was denied by the one of Pentecostals. The one of Pentecostals denied the distinction of the persons. John chapter 1, verse 1, we know what that says. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. God, but it also says the Word was with God, right? With God. The word pros theos. The word pros means face-to-face communion. So Jesus was in face-to-face communion with God in the beginning. That's distinct persons, right? Then you have the Holy Spirit. And first, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I want to read verse 26, and we'll finish up here. Romans 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Spirit intercedes for us. What does it mean to intercede? It definitely involves talking. Yeah, okay. okay. What else? What does it mean to intercede? <clears throat> How many persons does intercession involve? Can you have intercession with just two people? Yes. Sure. So if you're interceding, what are you doing? You're talking to God. You're talking. 
you by talking to each other? Intercessions. Let's say this. Okay. If there was a fight between a husband and a wife in a marriage, and I come and I intercede, I'm, I'm going on behalf of somebody for someone else, right? That's what intercession is. So intercession involves three parties. It involves one person going to someone else on behalf of another. So the Spirit intercedes. We know for whom He intercedes. He intercedes for us, right? But to whom does He intercede? The Spirit intercedes for us, but to whom does He intercede? Who is the Spirit talking to for us? The Father. To God, right? And if the Spirit is talking to God for us, that means the Spirit and the Father are not the same person, right? They have to be distinct persons. The final point is that all three persons, though distinct, are the one God. We already know the Father is called God in Scripture. That's obvious. Uh, we know Jesus is called God. John 1.1, in the beginning the Word was with God, the Word was God. But what about the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit ever called God in the Bible? That's one we don't really know about as often as we do about Jesus. Does the Bible ever call the Holy Spirit God? That's definitely true. And that's one way to argue for the Holy Spirit being God is that the attributes of God, the sovereignty of God, all of that stuff is, is attributed to the Holy Spirit. But go to Acts chapter 5. We're going to have a specific statement here that says that the Holy Spirit is God. Acts chapter 5. Verse 3. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Who did they lie to? God. The Holy Spirit? Yeah. And to keep back some of the price of the land. Verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now who did verse four say they verse three say they lied to? Holy Spirit. Who did verse four say they lied to? God, because the Holy Spirit is God. And one more, Second Corinthians three. You don't have to turn there. Second Corinthians three, Paul says the Spirit is the Lord. The Spirit is the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is God, He is the Lord. You have one God, three persons, and all of those three persons are one God, and therefore you have the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, and we'll talk more about that next week. Any final thoughts or questions? Well, we finally come to the end of chapter 1. Maybe chapter 2 won't take us as long. There's only three paragraphs, so it shouldn't take long. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. Thank You this time of considering the glorious doctrine of the Trinity. What a wonderful, mysterious doctrine, a doctrine none of us can exhaust, none of us can fully comprehend, but a doctrine that we can understand, a doctrine that we can know, a doctrine we can love and believe and embrace by faith, because it is so explicitly stated in Your Word. And uh, we worship You. We praise You, not just any God, not the gods of the nations, but the true and triune God of the Bible. Our worship is directed to You. And as we take a break now and prepare our hearts to gather and worship, as we hear the Word, as we pray, as we sing, as we fellowship, as we eat, we pray You would bless our time together and that You would use it to profit us spiritually and to honor and glorify Your name.
To that end, we pray. Amen.